have this instinct to support this band. My instinct is to be like, yeah, like there's something wrong going on here, but I want the standard to be a fair one that we apply to everybody, not just one company. We have absolutely every single right and every single responsibility to demand as much information, investigation, and transparency as humanly possible from this company. Like we're acting like we need our our government to babysit us here on this issue. Mm -hmm. And it's like, delete the app. I'm sorry, just like, it's not that difficult. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, welcome back, Joe. Are you ready to do some fact-checking? Yes, I am. Let's do it. And, and fact-slinging, I guess, too, because you anticipate yeah. facts that we need. You know, I, I intentionally put inaccurate information in the research to give me an opportunity to chime in, because you guys are too good with stating accurate information. That's great. That's good to know. <laughs> uh, well... Well, I'll be excited to see what misinformation <laughs> I, I plan to share today. So, uh, well, that's great because it gives the audience, at least gives me an out with the audience if I say yeah. anything false. Uh, so, we've got some fun stories today. Do we have a right to be rude? One Massachusetts townsperson asks that question, and the state Supreme Court answered her. Then we'll discuss the growth of college degree requirements and the pushback against them. But first, let's talk about TikTok. The Biden administration is demanding TikTok's Chinese parent company divest itself or face a potential nationwide ban. TikTok CEO is expected to promise firewall protection for Americans' user data when he appears before Congress tomorrow. Some politicians have started talking about banning TikTok. Now, this could take TikTok away from all 150 million of you. I'll be testifying before Congress later this week to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app. TikTok and the U.S. government sort of seem like they're like in this rocky relationship where TikTok is like, I promise I can change. And the U.S. government is just sort of like, no, you don't get it. I want to break up. I, I think it's possible that TikTok has offered more you know, concessions and oversight to the U.S. government than any other business in history. And it might still not work. So today is the day that the TikTok CEO will be testifying for the first time before Congress. Um, I think it's about time personally, but Joe, what can we expect from that testimony? Yeah, so we know uh, from Choose Prepare testimony uh, that he'll be focusing on a few key areas of concern. The first being the safety of the platform, particularly for minors. Then we have the basic data privacy for all users with an emphasis on American users. And most importantly, data security. Chu is looking to assure Congress that TikTok is working to firewall U.S. data and that the app's ties to China won't allow the CCP to manipulate it. Now, of course, a lot of lawmakers aren't going to be satisfied with Chu's explanation. Ricky, are you looking out for anything specific today? I mean, I... I'm just generally interested in seeing how, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be a nonpartisan uh, really feet to the fire attack here. I think the best thing that the government can do at this moment is demand as much accountability and transparency as possible. I'm, I'm hoping this doesn't devolve into some sort of right left thing um, because I'm, I'm a little skeptical of 
going forth with a ban first and foremost. I think this is this should be a huge information gathering sort of situation. The stakes could not be any higher, in my opinion. Um, 60% of American teens report being daily users of TikTok. Some statistics have shown that like on average, they're spending 90 minutes a day. That's kind of, you know, TikTok is very um, opaque about its, its data and how much users are actually using it. But that's the best estimate that we can get on how kids are interacting with this app. And so when an adversarial foreign government could theoretically have access to the hearts and minds of American kids and so many of them for such a large span of their waking hours, I think this is something that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he's finally testifying, but I'm also very wary of anything that he might say. I'm not sure that we should accept anything at face value. Well, you know, what's interesting, Ricky, is lately it seems like there's bipartisan support for doing something here. And, you know, Marco Rubio, Mike Gallagher, Raja Krishnamurthy, and Senator Hawley all have introduced legislation of some form to enact a ban on TikTok. Now, what they have to overcome is this series of laws called the Berman Amendments that were passed uh, back during the Cold War. And the impetus behind these were they wanted to let films, book, music, et cetera, flow freely between the U.S. and hostile foreign governments Mm -hmm. uh, and foreign countries you know, basically facilitate the exchange of ideas. That eventually was extended to digital properties as well. And so the key is going to be for people who want to ban TikTok is to ban TikTok without shutting down like that global exchange of ideas, which we we all think is really important. And uh, this is particularly important, for instance, for us. Like we do content in India, for example, and sometimes it's inconvenient content for the government of India. And so we don't want to lead to a tit for tat situation with countries where we're starting to ban their content, they ban ours. Now, as we'll get to China- Well, India bans TikTok, so we're not reaching yeah. them there. Well, I'm not saying, well, yeah, but- I, <laughs> No, I know, I'm just kidding. I'm we, just I saying, want us but... to have the moral standing. You know, like, so for instance, when Modi yeah. raids the BBC offices, I want the United States to say, look, like, you know, we even yeah. let RT no, into our country, which is something, you know, which is kind of crazy to me. but. Uh, and even Josh Hawley, who's one of the most aggressive people on this, has said that he basically supports the Berman Amendments and wants to create a carve-out for TikTok. And what's fascinating to me, Ricky, is like, I have this instinct to support this ban, but I want somebody to explain to me how they're treating... It's almost like the Trump thing. It's like my my instinct is to be like, yeah... Like, there's something wrong going on here, but I want the standard to be a fair one that we apply to everybody, not just one company. Yeah, and I also think that there's... um some distance that, I mean, I don't know a ton about the CEO personally. And I think that there could be legitimate like business owners and business operators that just want to run a social media platform, the same as any of our domestic Silicon Valley dudes do. Um, but the, the proxy to the CCP and the potential control that they could wield, um, just being a Chinese based company, regardless of his personal beliefs or attributes or what he might personally assure when, when the government comes knocking in China, I'm not sure how how like tough he can actually stand up to them. Um, I would say right now, I think we have absolutely every single right and every single responsibility to demand as much information, investigation and transparency as humanly possible from this company. I also think like there is, I can't believe that we got to this point and it's gotten this far. Um, and there hasn't been more of a domestic move to just like, like we're acting like we need our our government to babysit us here on this issue. Mm-hmm. And it's like, delete the app. 
I'm sorry. Just like, it's not that difficult. Keep your kids off of it. Delete the app. Like we're, we're, we, we're being exported like an opium. Basically. Mm -hmm. It's like the tables have turned here and we're, we're acting like we're so helpless. It's a stupid dance video app. Delete the app. Like we can do stuff domestically too. And the fact that we are allowing a foreign nation to have such a stranglehold on our culture. I mean, parents also can make their kids delete the app. They, I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy that we've gotten this far. It just really, I, I do think it's oh, concerning. I do think like we, we should separate out the, our kids addicted to this and yada, yada, because I think a lot of the things being say, said of TikTok on, on all that kind of stuff are true of all apps. They just happen to be better at it than Instagram or Meta, for example, but they're all trying to do the same thing, which is capture our attention. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the other thing is, so I think like the most potent argument against this is the foreign interference piece. Absolutely. Right. So hundred percent, just a couple of things. And, and the no opinion Substack was, had a really good post on this, basically outlining all the problems here. So just a few of them. TikTok has admitted to tracking journalists, physical movements and sending the data to its Chinese parent company. Uh, and as no opinion points out, this might just be the tip of the iceberg. It can collect face prints, voice prints, browsing history, text messages, pretty much anything you do on your phone. Uh, all Chinese internet companies are compelled by the country's national intelligence law to turn over any and all data that the government demands. Uh, and this is not subject to warrants or courts, not transparent. Uh, and this could be used for any kind of purposes. Uh, there's also mm -hmm. the problem of propaganda. So ByteDance employees have admitted being told to highlight pro-China messages in the TikTok's English language news app. At one point, moder moderators were instructed to ban videos that reference the Tiananmen Square massacre, the Tibetan independence, and other topics the Chinese government would prefer not to discuss. And a study also found that TikTok's algorithm steers users towards Kremlin disinformation regarding the Ukraine war, not to mention the fact that China bans Google, Facebook, tons of American companies. Yeah. They shut down speech in the United States. If you look at the NBA, for example, we've talked about that. We talked about Hollywood. You know, there's a great book by a Wall Street Journal reporter called Red Carpet, all about how China's captured Hollywood. They have simultaneously shut down our companies from operating in their country unless we abide by their very restrictive rules. Uh, and at the same time, have captured huge swaths of American culture. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, hard to even comprehend the data that they're sitting on about even things that seem trivial, but like our preferences and our patterns and our habits and just the way that American people think. I mean, it's just, even if they put their finger on the scale and they tip the algorithm 1% towards wherever their ideal outcome is or whatever the CCP could desire to destroy America from within with like that would have a meaningful impact on our culture. And it's, I just can't believe that we're at this point, to be honest, like it's, it's crazy. We could create, there are so many things that we could do even without governmental intervention, because to be honest, and I don't mean this in an ageist way at all, but like the, our, our government leaders are not really technologically adept and they're on these, you know, like the congressmen that are questioning these executives have really fumbled on very basic aspects of like how these platforms work and what, how, what TikTok even is. And they're talking about their grandkids on it. And like, I don't think that we should be deferring to them entirely. I do think that the like FBI investigations and stuff that are going on into tapping journalists and stuff like, let, yes, listen to that. But there's so much that we can do. Like there are domestic alternatives we Elon floated trying to bring Vine back. We can, we could all like 
talk about trying to make some sort of movement where a bunch of Americans delete the app until China does something or makes a change. Like we do have a free market power over this company. We do have the ability to act as individuals. And it's just frustrating to me that 150 million Americans are still on this app, despite these constant revelations that now they're tapping journalists phones. And, you know, like we're just, we're just allowing a foreign entity to just like sit back and laugh at our absurdity. Well, I think like one of the problems here though, is there's, there's one set of standards. If a Chinese back uh, company buys a U.S. back company or a U.S. company, and then it triggers a whole series of reviews. Now, that isn't the case when there are, over time, investments that happen in American companies that, you know, kind of trickle in and lead to influence, or in cases where, uh, a, you know, Chinese company organically gains market share on its own. It doesn't mm -hmm. like overnight trigger some kind of investigation. So there are holes in the system. I would say the biggest hole in the system though has to do with just influence beyond mere ownership. And I think this is true of Twitter, for example. So in November of 2022, Chinese human rights activists took to the pages of the Daily Beast to call on Congress to investigate Musk's, Musk's ties to China. And actually, I was reading this this morning. I couldn't believe this. So Musk has been rather pro-China in a lot of his rhetoric or noticeably silent for guys, a lot of opinions on things. Um, so, for instance, he suggested Taiwan relinquish some of its freedoms to China. Now, he has a Shanghai gigafactory. China is Tesla's second largest market. He has taken a one. He's taken one billion dollars in loans from state-owned banks in China. Tencent has a $1 billion stake in Tesla. Saudi invest, The Saudi Arabians invested $1.9 billion in Twitter. You can keep going on, the Qataris, et cetera. This is a guy and a company who has rather strong ties to authoritarian regimes, including China itself, and his behavior to me is very noticeable, like when he decides to talk about China or not. And to me, that is a question Chris Murphy in, in the Senate, for example, called on regulators to look at this and basically went nowhere. To me, it's a similar question, which is, it's the same of Hollywood, it's the same of the NBA, it's the same of Twitter. I want to see- the same of our institutions of higher education as well. Yeah, Yale, for example. They're all in the pockets. I mean, it's not an Elon unique thing, certainly, but I think, you know, if there's the first battle to fight, it's the Chinese owned company that's in 150 million American devices. I do think that that is the top line priority rather than people engaging in their free market choice to be owned by foreign interests. But I think there's a legal and then there's a, a moral question, right? And to me, I think there is both a legal and a moral question around Twitter, for example. And what I want to see is people going against the grain of their politics, right? So for progressives like myself, I want to see more progressives calling out the NBA and Hollywood for being captured by China. What I want to see a lot of these Republicans do is say, all right, well, Elon now, hero of the right, let's hold his feet to the fire. I'm not seeing enough of that. People just being like, look, it is inappropriate for somebody who's, you know, digital, you know, everybody's talking about the importance of Twitter. And, you know, as you and I were talking about yesterday with Joe, you know, at some point we'll revisit the Twitter files. The presumption of the Twitter files is that, th that Twitter is a digital town square. Like it's really important for free speech in America. It does seem relevant to me that the per person who owns Twitter uh, has such strong ties to China and has blown through any sense of process about how he's moderating speech on the platform. Um, and I think if you look at TikTok, they're doing more in many ways. So if I were like making the argument for TikTok, and I'm not very sympathetic to them, they're doing more than a lot of other companies to assuage concerns. For example, they have this thing, Project Texas, where they've come up with a $1.5 billion plan to revamp their operations to ensure that the site is independent, including creating a system for monitoring 
secret algorithms that includes an independent board of directors made up of Americans uh, with security clearances ostensibly, right? So they're saying, look, we'll spin off the data, we'll put it in the United States, it'll be mm -hmm. overseen by an independent board of directors with ties, you know, with, with clearances from the federal government so that we know that they're not like under the thumb of foreign adversaries. Honestly, that's more than what TikTok is saying. I mean, it's to what, more than what Twitter is saying. Yeah, I mean, obviously they're, the, the demands are the highest on them of any other social media company. And to their credit, like, again, I don't know that, like, I wouldn't paint every TikTok executive in China as a villain. Like, they're just people doing their business that happen to be, or they could just be people doing their business that happen to be operating under an authoritarian state. And that's not necessary. It doesn't mean that they're all bad faith. I mean, they've also demonstrated, um, a, an interest in like helping develop more comprehensive, uh, federal privacy legislation and bolstering the children's online privacy protection act and bolstering their age verification process. So it's not like they're, they're saying we won't do anything. I think it's just a question of like, what is our domestic tolerance for this? And at what point do we just say like this, this is not, it's not like they're, they're exporting some like food product or something that we like need for our sustenance or for our survival. We are, it's just a depressing place that we have come to when I can only imagine like G just sitting back and laughing and looking at the insane amount of time and hours that Americans are pouring into this rather than doing anything productive. Hey, yeah, bef before we move on, I have a quick question for you both. And I think it's something that all of the 150 million active users want to know here in the States. What is, what are the chances that it does get banned? Well, I think it's very high politically. Like I think there's, there's bipartisan consensus on this in a way that you'd see on very few issues. The politics very much support this. So if you're like Alyssa Slotkin running for Senate, you're going to want to support this ban because there's almost no downside politically to not supporting the ban. And well, the one downside would be potentially that young users might get pissed or young voters might be pissed off about this. That's one potential. But um, other than that, there's not really a downside politically, although I do think it should be the last resort. There's not a candidate in America unless you represent Chinatown. And even that, like, I'm pretty sure our congressman is going to vote against this, too, because a lot of the people who are here. Uh, are escaping the tyranny of the Chinese government. And, you know, there are very few politicians like Jamal Bowman uh, who are standing up for, I wouldn't say China, but saying that, you know, going after TikTok in this way is racist. They're very few and far between because, like, most Democrats, even at this point, have learned that criticizing the Chinese government is not the same as criticizing Chinese people. And as long as you're careful yeah. about those two things, like, there's not, like, a pro-Chinese government constituency here outside of Hollywood and the NBA and Twitter headquarters, you know, like, there's, and Wall Street. Like, most average Americans are trained not to trust China. Um, and that's why you'll see this. That's why Biden came out against it. Why Biden, Trump, Democrats in Congress, Republicans in Congress largely are singing from the same song sheet. Yeah. Now, this is going to be a standoff because the Chinese government this morning said that they're going to oppose any for sale of TikTok. And they came out with really strong language. So they're putting their, their, their foot down on this. I think this is rather inconvenient for China. Yes, it'll be unpopular to have 150 million users, young people, et cetera. They'll be upset about this. You know, one could imagine a constituency of young people getting really angry about this. My sense is that they will just move on to another platform um, that tries yeah, to do Yeah, I mean, it's just thing. so, like, glaring. Like, somebody just needs to make 
a domestic alternative to it. I mean, sure, maybe the algorithm might not be quite as advanced, but I, I do think that there would be a market for people that are looking to reach the same sort of like interface that would be down for like, we did have vine. There's no reason that like a type of vine could not come back with longer form video like TikTok. Yeah. But that's has. the thing is th there's, but that's why I think we should separate out and the CEO in his prepared testimony. So like we haven't seen the testimony, but you could read his prepared testimony basically said, Hey, we got to separate this out. He says there are four categories of issues, minor safety, data privacy and security, real world harms and online activities and the risk of foreign manipulation. That sounds like more than four, by the way, but the, so, and basically what he's saying is he's trying to say, and he's smart because he's right in a way that look, TikTok is actually more supportive of regulation in most of those areas than most American tech CEOs. So he's like, no, look, true. he's like, look, we're, we're fine on all these issues. Regulate the hell out of us. Uh, the only one they really need to, to really handle their unique issues. Like they may be more effective at capturing attention or whatever, but they're actually more supportive of regulation in those areas where they have more issues is on this, this propaganda piece and foreign interference. Now, the other thing I would be saying if I were TikTok, and they are like some of the people in their orbit are saying this, is that there's something going on behind the scenes where their competitors are pushing for this. So Peter Thiel is apparently in Washington right now, huddling with lawmakers, had some kind of dinner last night uh, where, you know, Peter Thiel, famous investor in Facebook meta, um, is apparently supportive of going after Chinese tech companies. The Washington Post reported last year that Facebook funded a campaign to hype up the danger to children of TikTok. We reported on that when it happened. So important to note that this isn't just people who are like, hey, like this is a like national security concern. There are competitors to TikTok who are sensing their vulnerability right now. And I'm not saying that's Teal's only concern. I mean, there's also could be other motivations to that as well. Like you could just genuinely agree <laughs> that this is crazy that we're at this point. And like but the meta, people that are. But you think Meta is genuinely concerned about the harm to children from TikTok or are they like. No, I'm saying yeah. what's Teal though. Like you could, I mean, we can't ascribe that that's his only motivation here. Like you can actually be concerned about this. And I do think that getting the buy-in from people in, in the social media Silicon Valley world to like help figure out how we can get ourselves an off ramp from this is our only means of communication basically right now with Gen Z and stuff like that. Like I would like to see some innovation and some, some Silicon Valley dudes get invested in like, where do we go from here and some free market responses. I'm, I'm, I'm game for that. Yeah. Well, I, I think we'll save the, what's going on in Teal's head conversation for another podcast, but I do think we can agree that meta is not above board on this one. Like they're clearly sensing an no, opportunity. No, certainly not. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. Certainly not. No. All right. Yeah. Joe, final piece as we send this off, what do we know about other countries that have banned TikTok? Like China, for example, severely regulates their own version of TikTok. Yeah. Why don't we demand that <laughs> well, China you know. give our teenagers the same version that their teenagers get. How about that? Funny enough, it's Afghanistan radical. is one of the few countries that completely banned TikTok. The Taliban government said it misled young people. So what I'm hearing from you guys is you yeah. support the Taliban policies. Look, that's how we are. We actually, as one of our values here, we say, we try to separate the person doing the speaking from the argument they're making. And in this case, look, they happen to be right. I would disagree with them on some other things, but on this particular issue. They, yeah, I'm not as gung-ho on the banning front. I come from Staten Island, where the right to be rude is inalienable. 
And now it seems like our particular brand of freedom, Joe, it seems to be spreading north. What's going on here? It does. Earlier this week, the Massachusetts Judicial Court came out with a ruling that made some elected officials in the state a bit nervous. Members of the public now have the right to be rude at public meetings. Now, this all stems from a woman named Louise Barron, who attended her local Southboro Select Board meeting in 2018. She got into a spat with one, with one of the board members about not having all the meetings be open meetings. Let's go ahead and play the clip so you can hear it for yourself. And the next thing I want to say is um, you said that you were just merely volunteers, and, and, and I appreciate that. But you've still broken the law with open meeting law. And that is not the best you can do. And, and when you say that, you know, this is the best we could do, I know, it's, it's not easy to be um, volunteers in town, but breaking the law is breaking the law. So ma'am, if you want to slander town officials who are doing their very best, I'm um, not slandering. Then, then we're gonna go ahead and stop the public comment session Look, now. Look, you need to stop go being into a Hitler. Recess. You're a Hitler. All right, I can we are say moving into, into recess. Thank you. All right. In case you missed it, Baron <laughs> called one of the board members a Hitler. After the cameras panned away, Baron said one of the board members called her disgusting and that if she didn't leave, he would have her escorted out. Baron later sued, and the state Supreme Court struck down the town's civility code for public comment as unconstitutional. I'll read you now, an excerpt. Or go ahead, Robbie. <laughs> well, I was going to say, are you guys Gilmore Girls fans? This reminds me of like the real life version of Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls is like the premise is like this New England town and everybody's quirky and they have these town hall meetings. They don't call each other Hitler, but there's like... <laughs> no, not a Hitler. A Hitler, a Hitler is the best part. Hitler. The funniest part of this video is there's nobody there. So like the <laughs> idea that she's like, somehow taking other people's time. It's like, look, these two should just sit down and have coffee. She's a 71-year-old woman. Like, I don't think that there was any, like, imminent threat happening yeah. here yeah. by her saying this. Um, and she, as she describes herself, she says that she's oppositional, but she's always ladylike. Mm. So I'll leave that in Louise's own words. But um, Joe, what so were you I'll, about to say, though? Yeah, I'll, I'll read you Southborough's public participation at public meetings policy. It says that all remarks and dialogue in public meetings must be respectful and courteous, free of rude, personal, or slanderous remarks, inappropriate language, and or shouting will not be tolerated. So that the court struck yeah. down that it said in its decision that although civility, of course, is to be encouraged, it cannot be required regarding the content of what may be said in the public comment session of a governmental meeting without violating both provisions of the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights, which provide for a robust protection of public criticism of government governmental action and officials. And they also added that there is nothing respectful or courteous about the public assemblies of the revolutionary period. So this is part of no. like just our our being a civil civil society and like our, our right to have civic engagement here. Yes, that means that sometimes we can have a little bit of incivility in the way that we might like come at each other. But we're we do have a First Amendment and there's no more important place for that to be upheld than within this sort of forum. I mean, and we, it's not to say that we're stripping people who are state representatives of other legal protections that everyone else is afforded. Like if somebody actually incites violence or actually assaults you or ex actually directly threatens you, the same protections apply to you, but you're certainly not allowed to sit up with your, 
um, microphone and your big swivel chair and just not have anyone be disrespectful to you. Like that's just not an acceptable policy. And it's so counter to like just the American spirit. Like, yeah, we are supposed to be able to call you a Hitler if we want to call you a Hitler. So this is what the court said. So the court said that the reference to Hitler was quote, certainly rude and insulting. But the protected speech was uh, nonetheless protected. Uh, the town's insistence on civility, quote, appears to cross the line into viewpoint discrimination, allowing lavish praise, but disallowing harsh criticism of government officials, end quote. Yeah. So viewpoint discrimination is something we talked about before. That's that's the thing that gets you in trouble in First Amendment is like, like the example was the church that we were talking about, which was a different you know element of the First Amendment. But like broad categories, like for instance, I have a Buddhist... Um, temple right behind me during the day you could hear them and their services they're quite loud but there's nothing saying that they can't do that in the middle of the day now at night if they Mm -hmm. were to do those services there's a local ordinance in new york that ostensibly says you can't be loud obviously we know people disregard that every day if there was a law against them saying something at night it's not because they're uh they're religious it's because it's nighttime and people are sleeping and so like you could imagine a rule against for instance interrupting somebody's like prepared remarks or something at a local board meeting and that's not viewpoint discriminatory it's saying look there's a time and place for comments mm-hmm. right that's different than saying you can't criticize us and be harsh like that's like, yeah. like that's different you know And And there's policies across the country that are similar. Like there's one out of California that that says that the public officials will, quote, treat members of the public with respect and expect the same in return. Like that sounds like Mm. something that a third grade teacher would say. I'm sorry. If you're going to be a public official, you are accountable to the people who elected you into office. If they want to say horrible things. Yes, that's unpleasant. And yes, I'm sure that there are plenty of examples of people going way too far and far beyond where this woman went. But that doesn't mean that it's illegal. And I think that's a really important line to draw. Um, One thing just to to steal me on the other side here, which I do think is important is I think, especially in the pandemic, we've had a lot of time on our hands to get riled up about things and we want to have an outlet. So there have been a lot of people that have shown up at meetings and perhaps been a little more boisterous and engaged than they have been in the past. Um, and there have been instances of actual like issues devolving in these meetings, but 81% of public officials uh, report harassment, threats, and violence. To give a sense, mostly this is taking place on social media and in emails and in which case I still think that's protected speech. Um, but less than a third have been harassed um, in person and out or report being harassed in person outside of like actual meetings and forums like mm-hmm. this. So I think, you know, there, there is a line to be drawn. Of course, if you're, if you're threatening someone, if you're stalking them, if you're harming them in any way, or if you're inciting violence, that's a totally separate conversation to be had. And I do think that it's probably a little less pleasant to be a public official today than it was a couple of years ago. Oh, I'll sure. give them that. That's true. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And I think there's Reuters had good reporting, by the way, on that sort of like the online version of this, where they actually started responding to some of the people, including some people who are like making violent threats to politicians. And like they started emailing people back and seeing what they replied. We'll just put that in the show notes. We don't need to go into that. But you get a sense of like the tenor of the conversation there. And so we should separate that out. Right. Violence, threats to violence. That's different. That's not yeah, that's not course. protected speech. I think in this case, what's fascinating is, I don't know if, have you guys spent a lot of time in local meetings like this, like city council meetings, community board meetings, school board meetings? So I've spent a lot of time in school board meetings and city council meetings. And 
what's fascinating is like what this woman is frustrated with in, in part is that a lot of these places don't follow their own open meetings rules, which if you're a local civic, civically engaged person, it drives you crazy. I used to get in fights with the school board because they did the same. They would deliberate behind the scenes and make decisions without input uh, of the public. And now, although this meeting seems sparsely attended, our school board meetings would, would be, you know, high drama in Nashville where the room would be packed often. And so, and so I, I sympathize with her. And a lot of these people are imperious. A local officials sometimes get drunk on power, believe it or not, even in an empty room. You know, you sit up in that leather chair, you make decisions for people. Sometimes people get really frustrated. Like, like, you know, you remember the Chappelle thing that we did a long time ago. It reminds me of when I was a kid, they, they steamrolled the citizens of my neighborhood of Staten Island and basically developed pieces of land that were protected wetlands and built these houses that like, like basically destroyed what semblance of greenery anywhere in our neighborhood we had without any input from anybody in the neighborhood. They didn't hold any hearings or anything like that. And when I look back on it, it seemed very clear that they had broken the law. Um, but because of like the unique nature of the city, uh, there's not like the same, like it's not the equivalent of this town. There's not the local mm -hmm. Staten Island meeting. You, you know, it's a big city with like a very complicated bureaucracy to try to figure out how do you stop something, right? And yeah. so I, I, I sympathize with this woman and her frustration. Like it's really hard to hold your public officials accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like a pretty fundamental right as somebody who votes for them. But I, I should have asked my mom. She was a councilwoman for a period of time. I don't think that she ever riled up any controversy in our <laughs> rather politically uh, similar area. <laughs> my mom is the woman rallying people up. So she's, she likes to get, <laughs> she'll show up to things, but she's also like on the internet like arguing people all the time about all this kind of oh, stuff. Really? Like where's the stop sign over here? She's like that kind of person. And, but, and you know what? These people are really important. He's like, yeah, you know, I've been on both sides. I've coached candidates too. Like, and like the squeaky wheel really matters. Like the people who really complain mm -hmm. about stuff for better or worse are the ones who get change done. And I think that's what you're seeing here is like these people are driving each other crazy, but that's democracy. Like you should be driving each other crazy, right? Like you shouldn't be hiding. Exactly. Now I have one question for you. You have Ricky. a right to be a mass hole. Now I have a question <laughs> for you, Ricky. I seem, so I know it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, but we like we basically celebrate these disruptive people in some ways in the city council setting. You and I have both, I would say you more than me, but we both are kind of on also critical though of people disrupting people in the campus setting, you know, and how they're like intolerant. I know they're not the same, but sometimes these are state universities. They're like the equivalent of a certain kind of like, you know, town square forum. Are we are we inconsistent here? Are we celebrating the woman calling somebody a Hitler here, and then in another context, we're we're criticizing them? No, I don't think that you have to celebrate someone to advocate for protecting their speech. I mean, certainly, I would equally protect her speech if it was if she was coming from the opposite vantage point, or I'd protect a college speaker's, or I'd I'd advocate for protecting a college speaker's right to speak, no matter what their politics are. Um, I think that. The difference here is, uh, first of all, there's nothing illegal about kids coming and shouting down speakers in college campuses. And we're not saying that that should be like outlawed. It's a it's a campus civility and um, like free speech culture issue. Um, but the the people that come to shout down speakers and stuff and and disrupt events from actually occurring in the first place 
are attempting to curb other people's free speech rights. And I think that's the issue at hand in the same way that the council people who don't want to be criticized are curbing people's free speech rights. And so, you know, I think you can have guardrails around disruption in, in a, um, in a council meeting setting. But I think that, you know, the people whose speech rights are at risk are the people, the disruptors or the, the people who are inconvenient at this meeting, like this woman was, um, it's her speech rights in question and the speaker on a college campus when someone gets heckled and shouted down. I mean, no one's saying that like no one's suing those students and saying that they've violated first amendment rights, but it's a civility issue. Mm -hmm. And certainly if a, if a college or university came and stepped in especially a public one and said, we can't have the, or you can't say that here, then, then there, that would be the better one-to-one. Yeah. I think the bottom line is what you're saying is, is true of the college campus is true of the town hall. You have a right to be an asshole. Uh, and so, mm-hmm. but we could, we have a right to call you an asshole. So if you step over the line and you know, yeah. like, I think Louise just got a little I'm not too calling heated. Her an asshole. I, yeah, I, think, I guy, think Louise just had a, I don't think a Hitler was really well formulated in her mind and she just got a little frustrated. But if you listen back to that clip, the, 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 the elected official was basically shutting her down and that's why she called him a Hitler. So yeah, more original metaphors, perhaps Louise, but I get what she was saying. <laughs> So we move on to college degree requirements, Ricky. You recently uh, published an article in the New York Post about your decision to drop out of college and why society should stop stigmatizing non-college graduates. What did you find in your research? Yeah, I mean, basically, I'm not alone. And I think that there's an important distinction of kids that are growing up in this student loan uh, post-pandemic world where we've we've just seen that there are alternative paths in that getting crippled by debt is not always necessarily a ticket to success or a guarantee of success. And so I think there's a generation of young kids in this post pandemic era that are going to have a different attitude about the necessity of a college degree. 62% of my generation say they want to pave their own educational path. There are 4 million fewer college students right now than there were a decade ago. Enrollment really dropped off for the past several years. And now it seems to have bottomed out below where it was before. But um, that rate of decline has slowed down a little bit. But, you know, I think there's just like a general phase shift here. And it's it's reflected in the American public. Um, 14% fewer Americans today say that higher education has a positive impact on society than they did just in 2020. And it's having an impact on the way that we hire people. I'm not saying that like engineers should not have to have degrees. And like, I would like the person who builds my bridge to have a degree or my doctor, but 53% of HR managers have dropped a degree requirement for at least one job, which is shocking. That's a huge number and even more are planning to do so. Um, and so we're expecting that there would be as much as 1.4 million additional jobs over the next five years available to non-college graduates. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm even further than you. I'm in the Aaron Rodgers camp. I want to do my own research. You know, I want to do, I want to design my own vaccines. Uh, Okay. No, I'm kidding. Why don't you do that? That was a. That was. You got the free market right. That was a broadside. Uh, no, I agree. And I think like, there are two two things here. One, I just recently read the Walter Isaacson Ben Franklin book, which is really awesome, and 
it struck me how much we had an apprenticeship culture back in the day. Like it used to be like, hey, you want to you want to be in the press or you want to be yeah. even a lawyer or a doctor back then. Now, I agree we want our doctors going to college and medical school. I don't think we do it the right way. We could talk about that. There are other countries that have shorter paths yeah. to becoming a doctor and lawyer. Law school shouldn't be three years. You, know, you should be able to go to medical school, for instance, straight out of high school, which is what my dad did. There's no reason why you can't do that. You shouldn't be able to do that. And it's extremely rare in the United States. All that aside, uh, we should have a, like stronger apprenticeship programs. And that mm -hmm. should be the path for a lot of people because you, you make money. It's almost like the NIL discussion in, in college. Like you should be able to make money as quickly as possible for your talents. Uh, the apprenticeship programs are often better designed. Like education is a good example. Education schools are famously way too theoretical. Whereas like there are certain programs like Relay Graduate School, for instance, that are like pair you with a teacher, you train alongside somebody, you get better in real time. And so like I, I support so many of these moves. I think the second piece here is that in a lot of cases, I think employers, and I've been guilty of this too, and this has prompted me to go back over and look at even our job descriptions. I think we mindlessly put in bachelor's requirements. Sometimes we don't even think about it and be like, all right, yeah. does this really need a bachelor's degree? Uh, I think that, yeah. I think a lot of people aren't even thinking about it. No, I completely agree. I mean, an example of that in my own personal experience was um, I'm a fellow at FIRE and that only came because I had, I interviewed Greg, who's now my co-author for my book um, on it for a New York Post article on the phone. And by the end he was like, you should, you should work for FIRE. We've got a lot of common um, interests. And so they were getting the paperwork together and Greg realized that they had a rule on their books that he wasn't even aware of that I think just got kind of grandfathered in that they, everyone that worked there had to have a college degree mm -hmm. and that had been the case. And to his credit, not only did he allow me to take that position still, he completely changed that policy because it just wasn't necessary. And sometimes it takes somebody to come and make someone realize that that's even on the books in the first place. Um, and larger companies, I think I can see, or like older companies, you know, that just, that's just always been the case. And so why change it? But I do think that there are some important industry leaders that are doing the same thing and will make others, especially in a tight job or, um, a tight labor market, do the same like Google, Tesla, IBM, Bank of America. Um, also states have done it like Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Alaska for, um, state, paid positions, certain ones, obviously not all. And Biden has made similar moves to his credit for federal government positions. And I think that this is just like, this is, this is going to help younger people that are kind of in my boat. This will help rural Americans disproportionately. It will help people of color disproportionately. And like, it's just, it's not to say that there should be no degree requirement anywhere, but it should just be a more holistic process. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure how we ended up in a place where it got, it became just such a given that you have to have a degree to succeed in society. And that's something that from my vantage point, you know, my dad is much older. He never went to college. He succeeded. It wasn't a major barrier. He would have liked to have gone if he could have. And that's the difference between mm -hmm. him and me. And obviously we're kind of on opposite sides of that coin, yeah. but like within just my dad's lifetime that has gone from something that was a nice thing to have to something that you had to have to something that I think we're going back to that original place again. Right. And this is an area where I think there's, there's so many substantive areas where there's a common sense, moderate middle on issues. And if mm -hmm. you look at the people who support this move away from college degrees, Governor Josh Shapiro, 
uh, eliminated in Pennsylvania, eliminated the requirement of a four-year degree for a bulk of jobs in the state's government, which is like where he has the most control. Utah Governor Spencer Cox, somebody I've I've interviewed quite a few times um, on the Majority 54 podcast, he did the same. Maryland's Republican Governor Larry Hogan did this. He's basically the one who set this whole thing off. Wes Moore, also somebody I've interviewed about this kind of stuff, has continued that trend. Uh, Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy. These are Republicans, Democrats, largely people who are viewed as moderate. Now, it doesn't have to be moderate. Mm-hmm. The problem that some of the people on the extremes of this have is that even though they'll agree with this policy, they will find a way to make it combative. So they'll be like, you know, uh, Joe Biden doesn't, you know, he doesn't support the working class people anymore. And I'm like, well, let's just look at the literal things he's saying he wants to do on this issue. You could still criticize him for the train derailment or whatever else. But like, let's just come to an agreement on this and see whatever we can do to cut the red tape around stuff like this. And this is an area where, you know, all my a lot of my friends on the left criticized the sort of coke web of organizations for a lot of things. But one thing I, that a lot of them will give credit to uh, the coke network on is movements away from certain licensing requirements, which is the cousin of this issue, something we've talked about in this podcast, where like there are all these like jobs that have these, you know, super onerous licensing requirements that are preventing yeah. people from getting jobs. And that's an area where I think we can have bipartisan agreement, both on the college side and the licensing side. Yeah. I think, I mean, honestly, I think the college degree requirement is even more egregious because you could have a degree in literally whatever for some jobs that like, it's not even, at least the licensing is supposed to theoretically have something to do with what you're doing day to day. Like the things that people will get degrees in today and then just never actually apply what they studied because we've gotten into this mindset where everyone should somehow be like having this holistic liberal arts education, which I think is, you know, there's people for whom that works. But I think that that's part of our problem with like the kid that knows that he wants to be a doctor should not have to take like two years of a foreign language Mm -hmm. before they can even start to go down a pre-med path. Like this is part of our issue. But one of the statistics, I'll leave you with this because I thought it was funny um, from from New York State. The of 22 to 27 year olds, those without a degree, 7.6% of them are unemployed, whereas 12.1% of people with fine arts degrees are unemployed. So almost double the rate. Mm-hmm. So and also other other notable mentions of, of degrees that do not seem to pan out quite as gracefully as people assume philosophy, sociology, media, graphic design and foreign language. Mm. Yeah, there's also. Oh, sorry, Joe. No, I was going to say, if, if not a college degree, what do you think should be a benchmark for hiring that helps employers narrow down the pool? Because some of these jobs get thousands of applications. That's part of it is I think people are like sifting through so many applications that they're like, all right, yeah. let's just come up with some categories to narrow things down. And another statute just later. Well, in. work experience in in a industry is certainly something that you can whittle down well, Yeah, that's where That's where quickly. I think it's honestly industry specific. So take you know, a couple of things that, that we're close to. So podcasting, right? Like a good example would be like, Hey, like there are known podcasting companies. So we should be taking people out of high school potentially and saying, look, like go through our program, the lost debate program, the Spotify program, yada, yada, yada. And you learn to podcast. And so that's like a credential is to say, look, like if, if, if somebody spends two years at Pushkin or NPR learning to podcast versus somebody with a four-year college degree, who do you want for your podcasting job? Probably the one who spent the two years at Pushkin or NPR, especially if you know that they're investing in an apprenticeship program. So I think, and you could do that for a bunch of different professions, right? Uh, And it's also notable that a lot of times people are 
getting degrees in areas that have nothing to do with the job they have. So the Federal Reserve exactly. of New York found that only 27% of college graduates are working in a field related to their major. Now, I want to be clear, though. We're not graduating, as we've talked about here, we're not graduating people from the K-12 to system with the skills that society needs by and large. No, certainly. I mean, we need to fix that, too. So, the, yeah. But that's, the, that's part of what I think people who are employers are looking at as, well, at least we got four more years where they may learn to write. They may learn critical thinking, yada, yada. yada. Now, or I, they'll just get shit-faced for four years at frat parties. But I think it depends. Pretend that. Are you saying that? No, it, it's totally dependent. Yeah. It's completely dependent. Are you, are you like, that's part that of why not, I picked NYU. Are you, are you making the claim that I'm not using my philosophy degree at the last debate? Is that what your degree is, <laughs> yeah. Joe? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Philosophy well, and you, economics. You're philosophizing right now. Sure. Maybe. Well, I want um, more ethical. I want more trolley problems brought to this this podcast. <laughs> I, like I, I, I haven't heard you use like the you know where, where's the argument about deontology versus consequentialism. I want I want to hear more of this. Okay, you know, we I mean, we could cut it out and post. But for the record, I support pulling the lever. You do support pulling the lever. Yeah, I don't want to get into it, but I'm a I'm a lever supporter. There's a big debate about the trolley problem actually going on around The Last of Us, but I won't spoil anything for people who aren't totally caught up on that show. But all right, no, I, I hear even you. I know what it is. Look, I, I think like to, to, to people's like defense on the college degree front, there is a sense that we're becoming anti-intellectual as a country and you know we're attacking knowledge, we're attacking reasoning, logic, science as a process, et cetera. That's a whole complicated debate that touches on many, many segments we've done on this podcast. I'm not with them on this particular issue, but I don't want like the the pullback of college degree requirements to be part of some kind of like, you know, anti-intellectual shift in this country. No, if anything, the vantage point that I'm coming from is that we shouldn't let this like administrative bureaucratic cabal just hold intellectual life hostage yeah. and, and make it exclusionary based on someone's ability to pay for tuition or their interest in paying into that system. Yeah. Like it, there should just be, that should be something that's celebrated more broadly in society and kids should be encouraged to educate themselves and read books on their own and actually take back like you don't need the stamp of approval from some university or some administrator that's lining their pockets with this idea that the only pathway to success is by going through them yeah no i'm totally with you on that Let's go to a tweet that we got from a listener uh, who wrote, I wish I had seen this post yesterday related to our coverage of the banking crisis. I wanted to know if either Ravi M. Gupta, which is my Twitter handle, or Ricky Schlott, which is you on Twitter, supported the reinstatement of Glass-Steagall. Joe, can you give us a little bit of background on Glass-Steagall, and then I'll give a, uh, a quick sense of where I stand on this. Ricky, you and I were, were going back and forth on this a little bit on Slack. So I, I think I'll take this for both of us. Yeah, I'm tossing this one to you, my friend. The Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 was passed in response to the Great Depression and the banking crisis of the 1930s. It sought to regulate the financial industry by separating the interests of commercial and investment banks, prohibiting commercial banks from underwriting securities, except those issued by government entities, and preventing investment banks from accepting deposits. 
The act also established the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to insure deposits through a fund contributed by participating banks. So I think like the question is like, are do we do we support that repeal or not? There's a big debate on the left and the right. So Holly and Senator Warren both want to bring back Glass-Steagall, and they often point to things like this banking crisis and the 2008 financial crisis as an example of this. I've gone back and forth over this over time, and I, and I think that this Glass-Steagall Act to me reminds me of Citizens United, the court decision, in the sense that it's it's taken on more meaning than the actual text of what it is. So Citizens United, I think people misunderstand its impact on the campaign finance system and think it's responsible for more of the problems in our campaign finance system than it is, but it's almost like a symbolic move, right? And I think that's what Glass-Steagall is, because, important to note, Glass-Steagall wouldn't have prevented this particular banking crisis because it only prevented commercial banks from owning non-investment grade securities, from what I can tell. And Silicon Valley Bank's portfolio of treasuries, et cetera, would have been entirely consistent with the pre-repeal Glass-Steagall. Uh, there's a good Brookings write-up from Aaron Klein, which makes similar points about the 2008 financial crisis, saying it wouldn't have prevented that. So to the extent these commentators are right, then it wouldn't prevent these particular crises. But I'm on board in general with the idea that commercial banks take our deposits should not be gambling with the money. So it's one thing to be like taking that money and giving it out for traditional mortgages and small business loans, or even loans to, you know, highly successful medium and large companies. So those are all things I'm cool with. Now, when you get into the world with credit default swaps and complicated financial maneuvers and things like what we talked about, Ricky, where these companies are taking advantage of the upside and taking on more and more and more risk so that the sort of beta on what they're doing is getting as high as possible, and then they know they have the protection of the U.S. government, I start to get uncomfortable with that. And I want to say, like, all right, let's, let's, let's put some things in place to ensure that you've got enough money on your books, that you're not taking on too many co complicated financial instruments that you nor the taxpayers understand, and that you've done the stress tests that we're talking about so that you have run the gamut of different possible scenarios and could survive them because we as taxpayers are inevitably going to step in and protect you. That's kind of where I am. So in spirit, I'm with the, the bringing back of something akin to Glass-Steagall. Well, friends, I think, <laughs> what is this, Thursday? We'll be back You love more, You want more banking stories. That's what you were saying I to do. us yesterday. Yeah, I'm just such an econ stan. Everyone who knows me knows that well. Um, keep keep coming with the voicemails. What is it? 321-200-0570. I'm pretty sure someone cor will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, yes, that was right. Okay. And we will be back here next week. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 